Welcome to Counterspin, your weekly look behind the headlines. I'm Janine Jackson. This week on Counterspin, headlines right now are full of the conflict of interest represented by Jenny Thomas, spouse of Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas, and her decidedly non-trivial role in the January 6th insurrection aimed at overturning violently the last presidential election. Our question is, a week or a month from now, where will we be? Will we still have one of nine Supreme Court justices declaring himself one being with his spouse, who has declared the 2020 election an obvious fraud? And will the corporate press corps have reduced that to yet another partisan spat? That shouldn't interfere with our belief that all is proceeding as it should, and no deep fixes are necessary. We'll talk with Sarah Lipton-Lubit from the Take Back the Court Action Fund about how we might respond to the Thomas scandal if we really didn't want it to happen again. Also on the show, for many Americans, the word journalist calls up an image of scruffy firebrands rooting through official documents to ferret out critical truth, defined as what those in power don't want you to hear, and then broadcasting that truth to a public thirsty for a democracy that's more answerable to human needs. Well, there are many things that stand in the way of that vision of the press corps that we imagine and that we deserve. One is the stubborn and at times brazen opacity and secretiveness of government and other powerful agents. Dave Moss is the director of investigations at the Electronic Frontier Foundation and the driving force behind the Foilies, an annual award of sorts given to those who make the job of shining necessary sunlight particularly difficult. We will talk with him about that. That's coming up. You're listening to Counterspin, brought to you each week by the Media Watch Group Fair. NPR's Morning Edition on March 30th said that further revelations that Jenny Thomas, spouse of Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas, was deeply embedded in the effort to overturn the 2020 presidential election are, quote, another piece of bad news for the couple, close quote. Others would say that the fact that the Supreme Court that makes decisions intimately affecting each of us, allows one of nine justices to refuse to recuse himself from cases involving a coup attempt his spouse did not merely attend or sympathize with, but actively sponsored, well, that's really more bad news for democracy and anybody interested in it than for the Thomases per se. But we know that we are dealing with a corporate press corps that seems to hate seeming partisan more than they do seeming anti-democratic. So what questions should we be keeping foregrounded as we see this Thomas case and its adumbrations unfold? Our guest has thoughts on that. We're joined now by Sarah Lipton-Lubet, executive director of the Take Back the Court Action Fund. She joins us now by phone from Arizona. Welcome to Counterspin, Sarah Lipton-Lubet. 
Thank you so much for having me. Well, I don't assume that listeners are necessarily news junkies who have read the latest of the latest. So I would just start by asking, what do you see as the important information that's been gleaned from reporting from The Washington Post, CBS, The New Yorker, The New York Times? What is the information about Ginny Thomas and January 6th that is meaningful? Well, as, as you've just rattled off, it's almost impossible to keep up with the latest of the latest when it comes to the actions of Justice Clarence Thomas, his wife's political activities, and his decision to continually, over time, rule in cases that are related to his wife's activities and actions. Each time we think that we've heard just the most alarming piece of information, the most serious violation of judicial ethics in this space, open up the front page and there's a new revelation. So I think probably we are still at the tip of the iceberg, but the most recent piece of information to come out and the most alarming, atop a mountain of alarming information is that Justice Thomas's wife, Ginny Thomas, a longtime right-wing activist, was in constant communication with former President Trump's White House Chief of Staff, Mark Meadows, encouraging Trump's efforts to overturn the presidential election. And in the months leading up to the deadly insurrection on January 6th, she repeatedly called on Meadows not to let the Trump camp concede, saying, quote, do not concede. It takes time for the army who is gathering for his back. This is upwards of 20 texts exchanged by Jenny Thomas and Mark Meadows leading up to the insurrection. It really could not be more alarming. Well, if we can dip into some of the media tropes that we're seeing as media look for angles on this, we're hearing, uh, well, um, she's just a spouse, you know. What does that have to do with him? And not just that, but if you think her actions have anything to do with him, you're a sexist. You don't think women have a right to their own views. Dahlia Lithwick at Slate had a thoughtful response to that, but I wonder what you make of the idea that, oh, why would you be conflating Clarence Thomas's decisions with Ginny Thomas's actions? I am so glad you asked that question, because anyone who is trying to tell you that this is really just about people not wanting Jenny to have her own political opinions is trying to distract you from what's really at stake here. This is not about Jenny Thomas, her views, her actions, as abhorrent as they may be. It is about whether Justice Clarence Thomas used his power as a Supreme Court justice to try to cover up his wife's participation in an attempted coup. What we should be concerned with here for those of us who care about democracy, for those of us who care about the integrity of the Supreme Court and the judicial system, what, what little integrity is left at the Supreme Court, is Justice Thomas's repeated decision not to recuse himself from cases involving Jenny's activities, whether that is the January 6th subpoena case 
where Justice Thomas was the lone dissenter, right? This was a decision eight to one in which he was the only one who tried to keep hidden Trump records about the January 6th insurrection. We now know that Jenny Thomas was constantly texting Mark Meadows, the Trump chief of staff, right, during that time period. This is about Clarence Thomas's decision not to recuse himself from a case involving the legitimacy of mail-in ballots. Again, an eight-to-one case where the parties were making the same stop-the-steal, big-lie arguments that Jenny Thomas was propagating, again, as she was communicating with the Trump administration in their efforts to try to overturn the election. So this is not about her political opinions at all. This is about the actions of a sitting justice on the U.S. Supreme Court and just blatant, flagrant violations of judicial ethics. Well, and not for nothing for those who are looking for comparisons. Stephen Breyer, I understand, has been recusing himself in cases that involve his brother, who's a federal judge. There are other cases in which Supreme Court justices have said, I am too closely connected to this, and so I will not rule on this case. This would not be a unique thing. It is beyond clear that someone who cared about the integrity of the court would have recused himself from this case. It's also clear that that's not who Justice Thomas is. Now, you raise a really important point here about recusal, and certainly other justices have made recusal decisions in much less egregious circumstances. And also, I think this situation makes really clear that the justices should not be allowed to police themselves, which is what happens right now, because clearly they're not taking that role seriously. And so it's no surprise that public trust in the court is at an all-time low. We are incredibly concerned with Justice Thomas's misconduct here, but I think we also need to make clear that Chief Justice Roberts owes the American people an explanation and should be held accountable for allowing this blatant violation of ethics and justice to happen in plain sight under his watch. So this is about more than Justice Thomas's actions. This is really about the integrity of the court as a whole. Well, let me just ask you from that, if we do want to keep from having these fights again and again, what are the structural solutions you propose and how can we see how they track back to instances like these. So there are a number of structural reforms that are urgently, urgently needed, that have been urgently needed, and that this situation only makes all the more clear, which is Supreme Court justices should not be allowed to make their own recusal decisions based on their whims or whether or not they care about ethics, right? There needs to be a binding code of ethics for the Supreme Court. But more broadly, we need to address really the rot at the core of the court's integrity. And this whole situation just drives home how urgent it is that we rebalance the Supreme Court by adding seats. The reason we need to add seats to the Supreme Court and expand it is that conservatives have robbed the courts of its independence and its integrity really turning it into an arm of the right-wing political movement, and nothing drives that home more clearly than the situation that we're facing right now. 
Well, let me just ask you finally about journalists, because I'm looking at coverage and I'm seeing lots of outlets like the L.A. Times as an editorial. Of course, Clarence Thomas should recuse himself, you know. And then I'm also looking at NPR, where Nina Totenberg is describing the Thomases as a couple pulled into an ethics vortex, which... You know, forgive me, but I don't think that's how media would talk about me if I was a drug court judge and my spouse was dealing cocaine. You know, I just feel like there's a range of media reactions that are kind of, yeah, it's bad, but you don't understand. It's really more important that we do something else. And then other folks who are saying, no, this is actually an actual urgent problem that we need to address. How would you hope to see journalists take up this case? As we know, it's currently still unfolding. It can be easy to become dulled to the flagrant abuses of democracy that we have been seeing all the more so, but it is incumbent upon all of us not to let that happen. It's incumbent upon all of us to call for the right thing to do, to give these incidents, which strike at the core of the integrity of our judicial system, the integrity of our democracy. I I frankly, I can't think of a story that gets closer to the heart of the peril that our democracy is in right now than this one. Justice Thomas, clearly violating ethics, he's violating the public trust, and he needs to be held accountable. And coverage of this story that just kind of raises our hands and says there's nothing we can do or we should expect these kind of egregious abuses of the public trust, that's disappointing. We've been speaking with Sarah Lipton-Lubit. She's executive director of the Take Back the Court Action Fund. You can find them and their work online at takebackthecourt.today. Sarah Lipton-Lubit, thank you so much for joining us this week on Counterspin. Thank you so much. A functioning democracy relies on an informed citizenry. But what you read in a high school textbook and what you see when you look up from it are different things. Importantly, transparency, a free flow of information, should be the norm, but it isn't. That makes even more important the role of journalists who dig out critical information the public needs to hear, whether we know it or not, information we need to challenge the powerful. And it reminds us of the need to protect that role and that ability. Our next guest is all about transparency and public knowledge. Dave Moss is Director of Investigations at Electronic Frontier Foundation and the prime mover behind the Foilies, a project out of EFF and Muckrock News involving tongue-in-cheek awards given to government agencies and others that thwart the public's right to access information. He joins us now by phone from Reno, Nevada. Welcome to Counterspin, Dave Moss. Oh, glad to be here. Well, some folks, and especially Counterspin listeners, may know about Sunshine Week. 
the yearly effort by news organizations to promote and, and to celebrate open government and access to information. The Foilies are connected to Sunshine Week in a way that's funny, but kind of laugh instead of cry funny, um, because it's about everything that matters in our lives and our relationship to power. Well, exactly. I think if you work in the space where you're filing public records requests and you're filing freedom of information requests, you have a certain personality where you love the gratification of receiving records, but you also take a little bit of, I mean, you have to laugh at the various ways that government agencies will try to evade giving you that information. And the foilies are our annual way to provide some solace through a little bit of humor and to those who file requests, but also to make sure that the people who are using these tricks don't get away with it, that they are publicly in the light during Sunshine Week. Absolutely, which is what Sunshine's all about. So it's about conveying absurdity at the same time as you're highlighting these real issues. So what then for 2021, what are some recent awardees that represent the problems you're talking about? I know, for example, that Trump and the toilet stuffed with documents was a little too fish in the barrel for you. Maybe that's maybe that metaphor is uh, more complicated than I realized. But in other words, um, it, it, you know, you've done Trump and we get that. What are some of the other things that are that you're trying to lift up? Well, you know, we try to make sure that we have a range of awards that go to local agencies and national agencies and things that are in the news, as well as things that are kind of pop culture related. One that from the very beginning we knew was going to make it into the foilies this year was the Wu-Tang Clan related FOIA request filed by BuzzFeed reporter Jason Leopold. Now, if folks remember, there was a particular pharma bro whose name I can't really pronounce. and It's going to be a little embarrassing, but I think his name is Martin Shkreli. Close enough. Before he was convicted of federal crimes, he successfully bid to win this Wu-Tang Clan, one-of-a-kind, super amazing album that there would only be one copy. And then he was convicted and the U.S. Marshal seized it. And in went some FOIA requests to find out more information about this secret Wu-Tang album that was eventually sold by the U.S. Marshals. And the U.S. Marshals refused to release how much money they got for this Wu-Tang album. And they redacted a bunch of photos so that we couldn't see the pictures that they took in order to try to sell this on the open market. So immediately, you know, whenever you can get Wu-Tang Clan in, the Wu-Tang Clan ain't nothing to F with unless the F stands for FOIA. Right. I can see why that would grab people, which it totally, it's absurd. Yes. And, I, and I, at the same time, and as I know you do, know that some folks would hear that and be like, that's like rich versus rich, and I've got nothing to do with that. So let's take a look at some of the other things. Street-level surveillance, taking a picture of your face, and there's all kinds of stuff that you don't need to be Wu-Tang, you don't need to be Martin Shkreli, exactly. you know, it still involves you. Right. So the one that I think is probably the most offensive 
of the year went to a company. Now, we often give these out to government agencies, but sometimes we give these to companies that really try to chill the public's access to information. So specifically, the company that we called out is called Clearview AI. This is a facial recognition company that has scraped the Internet for photos that you have published online in order to create a database that law enforcement can use to identify you. And we know that face recognition is racially biased and makes mistakes. It can pull people into the criminal justice system. This Clearview system is more offensive than others because it grabs the images that we put on the Internet to share with one another, to communicate with ourselves, and it uses those against us. Now, the only reason that we know Clearview AI exists is because of a couple of researchers named Freddie Martinez and Beryl Lipton filed public records requests around the country related to it. And Freddie Martinez specifically works for an organization called Open the Government, and he also is involved with a local organization called Lucy Parsons Labs in Chicago. And he had found out about Clearview and started filing tons of requests. They passed this information on to the New York Times. It became a huge story. You're seeing attorney generals take action on it. You're seeing lawsuits over it. You're seeing them being fined both in the U.S. and abroad. Huge controversy. And so what does Clearview decide to do? It decides to go after Freddie Martinez. Mm -hmm. So he had never been involved in a lawsuit with Clearview AI, but Clearview used one of the other lawsuits it's involved in to file subpoenas to try to get all of the information that Freddie Martinez had gathered, all the journalists he'd spoken with, all the communications with journalists and nonprofit organizations in a very clear attempt to chill Freddie Martinez's right to get access to information and just to retaliate against him. Now, after public outcry, Clearview withdrew those subpoenas, withdrew those legal requests. But nevertheless, you just know that they, as a big company, were trying to bully an everyday researcher. Absolutely. And, you know, you're describing a critical relationship, which is that Open government advocates, whistleblowers can pitch, but they do rely on journalists to catch. Folks reveal information at great effort, sometimes at peril. And I can only imagine how disappointing it is to then see journalists dismiss that information or not run with it in the way that is so important and that is so necessary in terms of getting the information out to the public. And I just wanted to ask you with regard to that, I know that as scholar in residence at the Reynolds School of Journalism at the University of Nevada, Reno, you work on something called the Atlas of Surveillance, and you're very interested in that street level surveillance that we're talking about. I wanted to ask you, I saw you cited in connection with that project a couple of years back, and you said, you know, if our goal is to keep neck and neck with the growth of the surveillance state, we'd lose. You can't keep up with it. The opacity is such that it's difficult for investigators to keep on track of things like surveillance. And so I just wanted to ask you, what do you see as the goal? You know, not just of that project, but of the project of the foilies and projects of different things that are aimed at exposing the the barriers that governments put up to transparency. What do you see as the hope of this kind of work? You know, we're kind of engaged in you know what the military would call asymmetrical warfare, where we are 
part of a, a small group of, of nonprofits and advocates up against a huge tech industry, a whole military policing complex that is just dwarfs us in funding and dwarfs us in resources. But nevertheless, by using things at our disposal, particularly transparency, we are able to have such an outsized impact. And maybe we're not able to always result in something that changes everything nationwide. And honestly, with Congress as it is, you know, that to me is not even you know, like a huge option to get Congress to pass anything on anything is you know, kind of a lofty notion these days. But we are able to have these victories in places like San Francisco and Boston. You're able to get laws passed. You're able to get new measures in place that maybe don't outlaw certain surveillance technologies, but at least get some controls in place or at least put the transparency measures in place that allow us to come back and say, no, look, the police are abusing this technology. We need to stop it. And, you know, we've seen with face recognition, we started to get a lot of traction with governments moving back on it. But it is hard. It is hard to keep up. But I just don't think giving up the fight is worthwhile. We have to take the victories that are there and we have to at least try to inform people about what's going on. And in the process, we're going to root out corruption. We're going to find companies like Clearview that are going to get sued for millions and millions and millions of dollars and that are going to have contracts you know, revoked. So I'm still optimistic, even if I'm also pessimistic, if you mm-hmm. know what I mean. Mm-hmm. I understand completely. <laughs> We've been speaking with Dave Moss. He's Director of Investigations at Electronic Frontier Foundation. You can find their work, including around the foilies, online at EFF.org. Dave Moss, thank you so much for joining us this week on Counterspin. Thank you. And that's it for Counterspin for this week. Counterspin is produced by FAIR, the national media watch group based in New York. If you missed part of today's show or you'd like to hear previous shows, you can find them on our website, FAIR.org. That's also the place to sign up for our newsletter extra or our action alert network. It's also the place to show support for the show if you're so inclined. The show's engineered by Alex Noyes. I'm Janine Jackson. Thank you for listening to Counterspin. Counterspin.